Good morning. <clears throat> Going to be playing uh, Dodge the Sunbeam this morning, squinting at everybody. But it's a beautiful day, isn't it? Okay, today is Remembrance Sunday. It's a day on which we remember war and pray for peace. And the theme of this morning's message is prepare for war. Um, this week has been a bit of a battle, even as I've I've been trying to prepare for this message, and uh, after the first service, and there's a whole lot of stuff that came out in people's lives, so stuff gets stirred up today, that's what we expect, because this is what the theme is about. We had a leadership day yesterday, and one of the team did say, can we please preach on life being really easy and straightforward, And because it does feel like every Sunday what we're preaching on does stir stuff up. So we're going to war today, folks. The paradox of Christianity is that Christianity is all about peace. But the Christian life does involve continuous conflict. And we see that in the person of Jesus Christ. We see that in the announcement that was made by the angels when Jesus was born. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. But then Jesus said, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. Jesus knew that his ministry would stir up opposition. And uh, we as Christians are called to live in peace, but we need to be ready for war. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. How do you know if you're a child of God? Or well, one of the ways that you are distinguished as a child of God is because you are somebody who seeks to bring peace into different situations. But Jesus said, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus knew that his ministry was going to be contentious, that Actually, God was bringing peace through Jesus Christ. That's what we read in 2 Corinthians 5 about how we've been reconciled to God through Christ. There's peace with God available to us because of what Christ has done. But that mission would itself provoke conflict. And we see this in the two great feasts, festivals of the Christian faith, Christmas and Easter. We see the peace of the manger at Christmas, but that leads inevitably to the bloody conflict of the cross. And this is what does set the context for Christian life. Jesus brings us into peace. We come in faith to Christ and we are brought into peace with God. There is this peace that is given to us, peace that passes understanding. But we also enter into a life of conflict, a life of spiritual warfare. And uh, as we're in this series in 2 Corinthians on the theme of prepare, we're particularly thinking about what happens in January when we go into two congregations, once Building work's finished at Alder Road, and uh, congregation stays here, and there's a new day for this congregation, and the congregation starts at Alder Road, and there's a new day there as well. And getting ready for that inevitably involves some um, battle. We're engaged in a fight. So here's the scripture for today, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 1 down to verse 6. Paul writes this. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold towards you and away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we'll be ready to punish every act of disobedience 
once your obedience is complete. This is the word of God. What we see here is the paradox of the Christian life. Paul says he's coming with the humility and gentleness of Christ. This is what we Christians are called to live in, the humility and gentleness of Christ. But at the same time, Paul knows that his ministry is an act of war, that he is also called to demolish strongholds. And the reason that Paul is writing to the church in Corinth is because there is conflict between him and the Corinthian believers. This church, which Paul founded, started, loves, relationships with them have become incredibly strained. And this means that 2 Corinthians is the the rawest and most emotional of the Apostle Paul's letters. He's deeply distressed at this breach in relationship with his friends in Corinth, and he wants wants things with them to be set right. And so he, he makes this appeal to them. I appeal to you by the humility and gentleness of Christ. What, what Paul wants is for the Corinthians to get a clearer view of what's really going on. What appears to be going on is just there's been a relational breakdown between him and them. But what's really going on is a spiritual conflict. That's why he says, I don't want to be as bold to you as I might have to be towards some who think that we live by the standards of this world. The problem is that some in the church in Corinth are thinking the problems are just normal human problems. And Paul, Paul wants them to see, no, there's something more going on here. This isn't just normal human stuff. What's going on here is a spiritual conflict. There are some strongholds that have been established here which need to be demolished by the power of God. There's this fight which isn't the fight of human fleshliness but is a spiritual fight. And so Paul's appeal to the Corinthians is stop, stop thinking in fleshly and worldly ways. Understand the fight you're really in. Understand what's really going on here. Understand why this, these problems exist between us. It's because of a spiritual battle which is raging and which you seem to be blind to. And so we need to firstly understand the fight that we are in. If you're going to get into a fight, it's helpful to know what kind of fight it is. One of the lessons of military history we see is that armies always tend to prepare for the last war, which means they're always preparing for the wrong war. Uh, if you read the histories about the Second World War, the British military was woefully unprepared to fight the Second World War, partly because the British military was expecting if there was a war, it would be just like the First World War. And of course, the Second World War was a completely different war from the First World War. It didn't involve millions of men in trenches. It was much more fluid and fast-moving. It's a different kind of warfare, and that's why the British military suffered so many catastrophic defeats at the start of the war until they learned what kind of war it was. That's what tends to happen, that you could always prepare for the last war. We need to be ready for the fight that is coming. Now, it's difficult for many of us even to think about this, and even the kind of language that I've used already in the last five minutes can be jarring for us, because in our church, not many of us are fighters. There's not many scrappers in the room. This isn't really our kind of demographic profile. There's not many looking out amongst you. There's not many people in this room who I imagine would like to be down in Bournemouth late on a Friday night looking for the opportunity for a punch-up. It's just not who we are. And so even talking about fighting and warfare in this way can be jarring for us. When I was in Belfast the other week, I heard a story from a guy who'd recently come to faith in Christ. An amazing story. A tough guy who had grown up in a tough estate which was, which was divided on sectarian lines and he said he unusually had friends on both sides of the sectarian divide but he'd often get into fights on the line because he loved having a scrap. So he said I love the scrap, I love the scrap in his broad Belfast accent. 
And since, he said, since coming to Christ, I've only had one fight. And it was like, this is amazing. I only had one fight since I came to know Jesus. Whereas he used to get into fights the whole time. Now, most of us, that's not us. Most of us never get into fights, would never want to. But we need to be realistic. We are in a, in a war. What is made clear here, we're in a war. And when we think about, when we read our Bibles, this can actually be a challenge for us as we do read our Bibles, especially as we read the Old Testament, because so many of the stories in the Old Testament are warfare stories, and so many of the Bible heroes are warriors. The Abraham, the great father of faith, got a group of men together to go and fight another group of men who'd stolen some stuff off him and duffed them all up. David, the great king, great warrior, Samson, the great hero sings a song with a donkey's jawbone. I've made donkeys out of them with a donkey's jawbone. I have killed a thousand men. That's not the kind of song that we tend to sing on Sunday mornings. Warriors. And that can be troubling for us. And there's lots we could say about the violence of the Old Testament. But there is an example for us here that as we read the Bible, we come across people who are prepared for war. And we need to be prepared for war. And that's the kind of language which is unfashionable in the church because of our history. We're very alert in our generation of things in the past which aren't good, don't smell right, things which were done apparently in the name of the church but certainly weren't actions of Christ. We think about the standout examples of crusades or things which happened under the empire, things which now we'd feel a sense of shame about. And that can make us very nervous about any kind of military language. We don't sing on with Christian soldiers. We don't sing militaristic songs, even Back in the 80s, I remember we used to sing a song a lot, which was terrible as an army with banners, the picture of an army marching out to war. We don't, we don't sing those kind of songs anymore. We're kind of embarrassed by militaristic language. But that in itself, I think, can be a tactic of the enemy, that we can be lulled into believing there's a truce in place. When there isn't, we can even be lulled into believing there isn't really an enemy, that there's not really a war going on at all. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. When I was in Belfast the other week, I read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. I hadn't read for a long time. It's uh, C.S. Lewis was born in Belfast, so it seems appropriate to read a book written by him. And This is a letter he wrote in the 1940s during the Second World War, and uh, imagining an older devil instructing his nephew, younger devil, about how to tempt his patient, keep him away from relationship with God. And Screwtape, the older devil, at one point says to his nephew, I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. It's how the world operates, I think. We get this sense, is there a devil? We imagine a figure in red tights carrying a pitchfork, and we think that kind of thing can't exist, therefore the devil doesn't exist. We need to be alert to these military tactics, this distraction and diversion that the enemy would lure us into. The reality, there, there is a real enemy, and we are in a real fight. That's why the Apostle Paul says to his friend Timothy in his letter to Timothy, at the beginning of that letter, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies made over you so that you might fight the battle well. And at the end of that letter, he says to Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. In Ephesians 6, it says our struggle 
It's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We are in a struggle. We are in a fight. We are in a battle. We do have opposition. And that enemy did not want the church in Corinth to flourish. The church in Corinth, the enemy wanted to tear apart by internal conflicts, fights, battles over personality and ways of doing things and by being compromised by sin. Corinth was a strategic city in a worldly sense, occupied a key position in the Roman Empire, but it was also spiritually strategic. And there was an enemy who did not want that church to flourish. And that same enemy doesn't want the church in BCP to flourish either. And as we prepare for what we're going to be doing in January, we have an enemy who doesn't want that to work. We've got an enemy who would love us to fail. Practical things, bits of building work not turning up, all that kind of stuff, it's all part of the spiritual conflict. We've got an enemy who would love there to be disunity, which comes between our two congregations. We've got an enemy who would love to lead multiple ones of us into sin and cause compromise to come. We've got an enemy who would not want us to know the flourishing of God as we start in two congregations in January. We've got an enemy who wants to lull us into thinking, actually, there isn't a war at all. We've got an enemy who would want to distract us, just keep us thinking about other things. We've got an enemy who would want us to be pacified spiritually by just getting soporific because of the things of the world, the Netflix and TikTok thumb stuck in our mouths and stopping us from seeing what's really going on in the heavenly realms. If you're here as a Christian this morning, most of us are, You need to see yourself, understand what you are. You're an enlisted soldier who needs to be ready for war because there is a war going on. There's a fight raging. We need to have our eyes open to see it. Secondly, then, we need to understand the weapons we have with which to fight this war. Paul says here, 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. So what weapons do we fight with? If you're going to get into a fight, have the right weapons. Don't bring a knife to a gunfight. We're in a big fight. What kind of weapons are we provided for? They're not worldly weapons. They're very different. Earlier in the letter, 2 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul describes what they are. He says, we have these weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. Weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. And that statement, that description, weapons of righteousness, comes in the middle of a paragraph which explains more what weapons of righteousness are. Right-hand weapon. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, and hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, and purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God. Right hand weapon. Left hand weapon. Through glory and dishonor, bad reports and good reports, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Weapons of righteousness in right and left hand. This is a fight that is conducted by living like Christ. That like him, we live in a way which is sacrificial, self giving. Not living first for ourselves, but living for him and for other people. Giving of ourselves. It's a fight. These are weapons we hold which are dependent upon God, not on our own strength. 
We recognize our complete dependence upon him. These are weapons which are wielded when we live in unbudging integrity. We don't allow our integrity to be compromised by the things of the world. And where we pursue Christ over all the prizes and opportunities and distractions of the world. These are our weapons of righteousness in right hand and left. And holding these weapons often looks like weakness. Looks like endurance, looks like trouble, looks like hardship, looks like distress, looks like being unknown, looks like being sorrowful, looks like being poor. These are often how the weapons of God are wielded. And yet in these weapons there is the power of the Holy Spirit which can demolish strongholds. The most powerful stronghold demolishing bomb the human race has so far invented from as see it in the sunshine is the GBU-57AB Massive Ordnance Penetrator, MOP for short. It's a hugely impressive, very terrifying weapon. It's a precision-guided 30,000-pound bunker-buster bomb used by the United States Air Force, which can penetrate 200 feet, designed to blow up bunkers buried deep in the ground, which might be carrying other weapons. It's a very impressive, very terrifying, very expensive bomb. But Paul says that we have power to demolish strongholds. We've got power to blow bunkers of disbelief. We're holding weapons of righteousness in right hand and left hand. So we look around the world, as it is, we can see there are these strongholds. These strongholds of pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. And we can look at that and we can think, how on earth are we going to make progress? How on earth are we going to make progress in our world where it seems that it's not even for most people that Christianity is irrelevant. Most people don't even think about Christianity. So how on earth are we going to penetrate these bunkers of resistance? Well, we can look around the room at ourselves this morning and we can say, well, we're the evidence that can happen because belief is not easy in our culture. And yet you and I believe what happens the pretensions that would set themselves up against the knowledge of God were blown up in our hearts by God's grace. And that can happen. We hold these weapons. We fight not with the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Brothers and sisters, we've got to believe that we have these weapons which are powerful to demolish strongholds not being left unarmed. What then is it that we fight for? War is costly. Think about that today, don't we? Particularly, we think about the terrific cost. That's how Nathaniel started as we began our service this morning, to remember, to think about those who suffered and died. And as we think about the history of the war, particularly as we think over the last century, which is our kind of frame of reference as we come to Remembrance Sundays, put our poppies on all the rest. Probably our feelings about that are very mixed. We think back in the great framing event in our cultural history of the First World War a century and more ago now. We think about the millions of men slaughtering one another in the mud of Flanders, and probably we think there's nothing glorious or worthwhile. Probably we think that was worthless, minds numbing, crazy slaughter. What was it for that those millions of men would spend those four years churning each other into the mud? What was it for? 
might feel a little bit differently, perhaps about the Second World War. That's perhaps an easier one morally for us to think. Well, there was something about that, that it was such a clear conflict against tyranny, and maybe we can celebrate that more. But again, when we think of more recent wars, when we think about Iraq and Afghanistan, probably there's more of an ambiguity for us. Was it worth it? What was the point? As we look at Afghanistan now and think about all the blood and treasure, all the people who gave their lives, all the Afghans who lost their lives, and now the Taliban back in control, and has anything ever really changed? And we can think about the cost of war, and we can have very ambiguous feelings about it. Now, we need to see, if we're going to engage in this spiritual fight, we need to see that the cost is absolutely worth paying, that what we are obtaining through our spiritual conflict is a price worth paying for a prize worth having. Paul says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is the goal of our warfare that we would become fully obedient to Christ. We would conform to Christ even in every thought. And that's a real fight. So I don't know about you, but certainly not all my thoughts are yet in complete obedience to Christ. And what we're called to is to fight for that. There's There's a fight going on for our minds, for our thoughts, for our emotions, for our actions which flow from our thoughts and emotions. There's a real fight happening that we would conform to Jesus Christ, that we would be like him. And as we prepare for what we're going to do in January, there's all kinds of practical preparation that we are doing, all things that we need to get ready and sort out, but there are spiritual battles to fight as well. There are spiritual strongholds that will need demolishing. There's some obedience to Christ which is going to be needed. We are Fighting over contested ground. We have an enemy who doesn't want us to succeed. We have an enemy who doesn't want us to flourish. We have an enemy who wants to lull us into thinking there isn't a conflict going on at all. Who wants us to be distracted or divided. And not engage in the fight to which we are meant to be in. As we approach January the 8th, we need to pick some weapons of righteousness up in our hands and demolish some strongholds. To be obedient to Christ, even in every thought. I think there's some particular areas we can identify where we really need to go to war spiritually. I feel increasing conviction about how we need to go to war for the 20s. There's a whole generation who, yeah, most, for most of them, not even that they don't think Christianity is relevant, it's because they don't think about Christ at all. We need to fight for this generation. Think of the thousands and thousands of students in Bournemouth and Paul. And how few of them know Christ Jesus. And the thing about that generation is that if there are not the 20s in a church, in 20 or 30 years, there isn't a church. We've got to fight the fight for the 20s. Those of you here this morning who are in your 20s, we've got to help you to engage in this battle for your generation. We've got to go to war here. We've got to believe that God is able to demolish strongholds of every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Our 20s think they know about God, that there isn't really a God or he's not really relevant. We need to pick up weapons of warfare so that those strongholds, those pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God are demolished. We've got to fight for the 20s. We need to see more 20s coming to know Christ, worshipping with us, being part of us, leading forward for the next generation. 
We need to fight the fight for money. We need to fight that practically, paying the bills we've got to pay, paying the mortgage on the building. I think there's also a spiritual dynamic to that. Money is always a spiritual thing, fighting about seeing the spiritual fight of money because the way that money would set itself up in our hearts as God. There's also a fight for it in terms of how we operate as two congregations in January. I think there could be a real danger of disunity coming there. It could be that those of you who are in the congregation here look at the crowd up at Alder Road and think in terms of the building project there and the ongoing mortgage. Well, that's their problem. It's not ours. And there could be real opportunity for disunity. We need to fight for unity and fight for trust in God. There's a, a fight for purity that we need to engage in. We live in a culture which is just swimming in filth so much of the time. And the default, the easy thing to do is just to get caught up in that tide. We've got to fight for purity. We've got to fight for not some hypocritical, uh, holier-than-thou way of living, but a genuine heart integrity that we have, that we are genuinely living in a way which reflects the purity of Christ. We have to fight for it. We have to fight. It's not easy. In our day, it's not easy in our culture. It's much easier just to go with the drifts. That's normal. So normal, it doesn't even look filthy anymore. It just looks normal, acceptable. We need to live in a way which is different, the way of Christ, and a, a genuine life-giving purity, which does speak. There's a contrast where it can be seen that we have something. Something's been, something has happened to us, which gives a life-giving purity amongst us. We need to fight for it. There's a war. We need to fight for spiritual vitality, not being a people who just go through the motions, but a people who genuinely know, experience the presence of God. We need to believe for, expect, look for the presence and the power and the fruit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit to be evident amongst us. One of the good things when we go to January and is that we're going to have more space in every sense, more space in time and physically and more space on a Sunday to minister to one another. We need to, but it's not just Sunday, it's throughout the week. There needs to be in us, each of us, each of us who claims to know Christ, each of us who's a member of the church, a, a genuine spiritual fire that is burning. Not just going through the motions, not just a little bit of religion, but a passion and a zeal about us. We've got to fight for that. We've got an enemy who would want to squash that. Just lead us, lure us into passivity. Lure us into just going through some religious motions. We've got to fight for spiritual vitality. And we need to fight for mission. The fight we're engaged in isn't just offensive. It is offensive. It is, it's territory-taking. At the end of this passage in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 15, Paul writes, Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow. Now, as a statement, as a statement of faith itself, as your faith continues to grow. That's what Paul was looking for in this church. It's what we need to look for in our church. Growing faith. As your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand. Not a little bit, greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. That was Paul's hope. He, he knew that the conflict the church in Corinth was engaged in wasn't just for them. It wasn't just so that relationships between him and them would be healed and this church would start acting in a more decent way. No, it was about the wider mission, a mission that was for the ends of the earth. As your faith grows, Corinthians, so our sphere of mission activity can expand. And that's what we need to fight for here at Gateway. There'd be a growing faith amongst us, which leads to an expansion of mission in BCP and in the region's beyond 
that we're living in a way which causes the gospel to go. That we are talking about Jesus to our friends, our neighbors, our work colleagues. And we're pushing out into territory, regions beyond. That's the war we're in. That's the fight we have. And so this Remembrance Sunday, as we think about the sacrifices made by people for our freedoms, as we have these mixed thoughts of thankfulness and regret maybe, and look at the things that have been achieved through conflict and all that's been lost, we need to look to Christ. We need to pick up weapons of righteousness in right hand and left. We need to believe that we have divine power to demolish strongholds. Every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God And that as our faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity will greatly expand for the glory of God. We are engaged in a fight. There is a war going on. Let's pick up our weapons and let's get into the fray. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are our great king. Thank you you fought the fight all the way to the cross, that we might be brought into life. Thank you. The promise for us is reconciliation. It is peace. But Lord, we know that in this life we have ongoing conflict. There is a spiritual war in which we are caught up. And I pray that we'd have our eyes open to see that. We wouldn't be lulled by enemy tactics and to think there's nothing going on. But we'd be alert to the fight and engaged in the fight. And Lord, that we would take territory. For us, Jesus, here, would we take territory in this season, spiritual territory, would we see some uh, strongholds demolished? Lord, I pray for us, even in this room now, I pray that in our experience with people around us, people we know, or maybe even things in our own lives where there's some strongholds that need to be demolished, we'd see you in your grace and your mercy with your divine power come and break those strongholds down, that we and those we love and care for and meet and speak to might walk in the freedom and the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Help us, aid us in this fight, O God. Let us not shirk it. Let us embrace it. Have our eyes, spiritual eyes wide open and our hearts full of faith and confidence in you. In your name we ask of Jesus. Amen. Let's dance and worship him.